Welcome to the Calvary Young Adults Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Here's today's sermon. All right, if you have a Bible with you and you want to grab that, if you have a Bible with you and you want to grab that, we'll be in Ephesians chapter 6 tonight. Ephesians chapter 6. Um, I'm glad y'all are here tonight, and some of you I know are new. We're newer. This is kind of the season of the year where some people maybe come in for the first time from school. So I want to introduce myself. My name is Brian Howard. I'm the teaching pastor here at Calvary. And um, yeah, yeah, really looking forward to working through this text of Scripture tonight. Uh, and really, I'll start with saying this, that this was a big week for my family. Uh, and part of the reason it was a big week for my family, uh, I've got three kids. My oldest is five years old. She'll be six in about a month. And on Tuesday, we got up real early, got everything together. We went over uh, to her school, and this was the, uh-oh, we went the wrong way. I, we got a photo, I, 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 and we started a countdown timer. Um, yeah, this was what happened. Uh, yeah. So this is my daughter, Grace, and uh, she started her first day of kindergarten, um, and there were lots of tears, and that was mostly me. Um, and, and, no, in, in all honesty, she was like totally like cool, ready to go. She's got this, no problems, until the moment we actually had to say goodbye, and she breaks down, and then my wife breaks down. Um, and for me, like I, when I cry, it's not like big, ugly tears. It's just like I kind of get like moist in the eyes, and then I put on sunglasses to be like, I'm cool. I got this. But I was not cool, and I did not have this. And, and you know what I found myself doing all week? I found myself thinking uh, about that experience that experience uh, of dropping my five-year-old girl off at kindergarten and why that like stirs up such deep wells of emotion inside of a parent. But here's what you need to know. There's actually nothing unique about what I experienced. What I experienced isn't powerful because I experienced it alone. What, was, what I experienced was something that every parent experiences at some time or another with their kid. And I was trying to think deeply about that experience and think deeply about like what was actually happening on Tuesday morning around 9 a.m. when we're dropping her off, what was actually happening inside of me? And here's what we know. If you're a Christian or you call yourself a follower of Jesus, or even if you just believe yourself to be a believer in God in some way, what was happening inside of me at 9 a.m. on Tuesday morning was the experience of something that is real and profound out in the universe called love. That's what I was experiencing. I was experiencing the love that I have for my daughter. I was experiencing this profound thing that's not just inside of me, but is in some mysterious way it woven into the fabric of the universe. I was experiencing love for my kid. And that's the explanation I would give you. And yet here's what I want to point out tonight. I want to point out that if you are not a believer in God, and I think some of you are in this room tonight, and maybe you don't believe in God, or maybe you're just checking it out. Maybe you're not sure what you believe. But I want to point out, that if you don't believe in God, if you are what we would call a naturalist, meaning everything in the universe can be explained by everything else in the universe. It's a closed system. There's no supernatural. It's just the material world acting upon itself. What I experienced on Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. when I dropped this girl off for preschool was not love, but it was rather a chemical reaction of serotonin and dopamine in my brain happening. That's all there was. It was just this illusion of love, and really all it was was a chemical reaction going on in my brain. In fact, I want to show you the way the world's most famous atheist puts it. And this may surprise you to see us quoting an atheist, but when we think about the world, we don't want to just kind of be in our Christian cocoon. I want you to actually hear what people who disagree with every Christian in this room have to say about the experience of life. Here's what Richard Dawkins says in one of his books. He says, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect that there is if there is at, no, if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. We are machines for propagating DNA. 
It is every living object's sole reason for being. So what I love about Richard Dawkins is not his conclusions. I think he's wrong. But what I love is his honesty. His honesty actually looks at the experience I had with my daughter on Tuesday morning at 9 a.m. and says, I know you think you were feeling love. What you were actually feeling is serotonin and oxytocin in your brain blending together so that you could propagate more DNA. That's what Richard Dawkins would say about me, that I'm not experiencing anything true or transcendent or supernatural or beautiful or good because in the universe he's describing, there is no evil, there is no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. But here's what I'm convinced of. I'm convinced that even if you're in this room and you're not a Christian, even if you're not sure you believe in God, I don't think there's anyone in this room, perhaps you are here and that is actually what you believe, but I don't think most of us live like this is actually true. I think most of us live in the deepest, most meaningful relationships in our lives with our brothers and sisters, with our parents, with our boyfriend or girlfriend or fiance or spouse. We live as if love actually exists. It's not some chemical reaction or illusion in our mind, but rather something that is profound and true and real, even though we can't touch it, even though we can't see it, and even though we can't fully explain it by the natural world. In fact, I want to say this to you tonight, that the material world alone cannot account for the most important things in life. Like just the stuff that you can taste and touch and smell and see in this world cannot and will not account for the most meaningful things in life. That includes love and peace and joy and purpose and morality and beauty. Like the physical world itself cannot account for those things. There has to be something beyond that. Meaning, if you want your life to have meaning, if you want to actually understand the beauty and the brilliance of what it means to be a human alive in the world today, you cannot just count on the things that you can touch and taste and smell and feel and see. You have to count on the reality that there is something outside of your physical senses that is actually meaningful and significant and important to your life. And that's what I want to talk to you tonight out of Ephesians chapter 6. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the realities of this world that are not things that can be explained or accounted for by the material world, that you can't put in a test tube, that you can't put your finger on, and yet all of us know it's real. Things like love and purpose and hope and morality and joy and peace. Tonight, I want to talk to you about a reality we all live in that is beyond the physical and material world and yet is no less true. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 10 says these words. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So I told you tonight, we're gonna to talk about the world that is outside of the material, physical world that you can see and smell and taste and touch. The world outside that can be explained only by our experience of it. And yet we know it's real. We know there's something out there that is more than just our physical bodies and physical reality. And the reality I want to talk to you tonight is the reality of a spiritual dimension, of a spiritual world, where there are angels and demons and Satan himself. Now, over the years of doing ministry, I've just learned that some people think it is insane and crazy to believe in a literal Satan. And here's what I want you to know tonight. I believe what the Bible testifies when it says there is a literal enemy of God and of God's people named Satan that there are enemies, that there are demons, uh, that they hate us, they want to destroy us. Uh, I know oftentimes in cartoons, it's like a little red man with like a pitchfork and little horns. I actually believe it's so much worse than that, so much more insidious than that. I believe there is an evil animating the evil things that happen in this world. And again, some people think it's crazy to believe in Satan. I think it's crazy to look around the world 
See, all of the hatred, all of the bigotry, all of the racism, all of the injustice, all of the awful things that happen in this world, and to think it's not being animated by an evil personality. I think that's what's crazy. So what I see clearly taught in the scriptures and what I observe in the world is that evil doesn't just happen randomly amongst human beings. It is driven, it is propelled by a force and that force is named in the Bible and that force is named the devil, Satan, the accuser, the evil one. There is a force behind the evil in this world. And here's what Paul tells us. There's this force behind the evil in the world and it says here that he's got plans for you. He's got schemes for you. He's actually running plays against you. If you're a baseball fan, he is a pitcher and he is throwing pitches against you. He knows what he's doing. He is trying to win. He is trying to defeat you and he is trying to destroy you. And oftentimes when we talk about spiritual warfare, what can kind of happen is our brain can immediately snap into the movies you've seen. And so spiritual warfare always means like middle of the night, you feel like some heavy presence on your chest or some weird form of possession. And I want to admit that that's in the scriptures. And I've seen that in my own life with other people. I've seen that people experience something like that. And I want you to know that for most of you, your experience of Satan is gonna be far more subtle, far more low-key, and far less visible, and yet far more dangerous. And it's far more dangerous because if you're not aware of what Satan's actually doing in your life, he will defeat you over and over and over again. Some of you have heard me share this before, but I wanna share the four schemes of Satan. The four ways Satan goes after you over and over and over again. Number one is deception. Deception is the battle for your mind. The number one thing Satan wants to do is lie to you. The scriptures say he is the father of lies. What he does is he lies to you. He tells you things that are not true. He tells you things that are not true about God, things that are not true about you. So the next time that you start to get the feeling that God doesn't really love me and I don't really belong here and maybe I'm not worth that much or maybe I shouldn't obey or maybe I should just go do my own thing, that is a lie put into your mind by Satan. So deception is the battle for your mind. The, the second is this, it's discouragement. Discouragement is the battle for your heart. It's that thing you have where you just feel heavy, you feel discouraged, you feel like you're no good, you feel like no one wants you, you feel like nothing's working out for you, everything feels down. Again, most of us just kind of assume that's based on our circumstances in life. And yet what the scriptures say is that God is actually after our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and Satan is after the same thing. He's after our heart. Discouragement is the battle for our heart. Number three is temptation. Temptation is the battle for your strength. It's the battle for your actual physical actions. That what Satan does from the very beginning is he tempts you. He tempts you into sin. He tempts you into destruction. He tempts you into rebellion against God. So deception is the battle for your mind. Discouragement is the battle for your heart. Temptation is the battle for your strength. And the final one, accusation, is the battle for your soul. Meaning Satan's greatest weapon in his hand is to accuse you of unforgiven sin. When he can say that man or that woman has committed sin against the God of the universe, that is an accusation. In fact, in the scriptures, Satan is often called the accuser of the brethren. And so what Satan will do is he will accuse you of your sin before God. He will point out that you are a sinner. He will point out your rebellion against God. And again, so many of us are tempted to believe that when we're tempted, it's just something inside of us. When we're discouraged, it's just because of circumstances. When we're deceived, it's just because we didn't get our minds straight. But I want you to know that Satan is coming after you. He is looking to destroy you. And what Paul says is we need to be aware of his schemes. We need to defend ourselves against these schemes. We need to be aware that the spiritual attack is coming. 
And my concern for so many is that you think because you didn't wake up in the night with sweaty palms and you're like a beating heart and you're like, what's going on? That you've never experienced spiritual attack. But here's what I want to convince someone in here of. You have experienced spiritual attack today. This is not some strange, rare, mysterious thing that happens to a select group of Christians. This is Satan's plan for all Christians, that Satan is deceiving you and discouraging you and tempting you and accusing you day after day after day after day. And if you don't get that, like if you don't internalize the fact that you were involved in a spiritual war, here's what will happen. You will lose every fight you don't know you're in. When you don't know you're in a war, when you don't know you're in a battle, when you don't know that there are spiritual realities outside of the things you can see, you will lose that fight over and over and over again. And tonight, I wanna talk about how do we become aware of that fight? How do we push back? How do we fight back in the way that God has called us toward? And how do we take our stand against the devil and his schemes? Verse 12 says this, for our struggle, our wrestling match, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of dark in this world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So so in other words, what Paul is gonna tell us is that your greatest enemy in this life is not another person. That's what Paul means when he says your battle or your struggle is not against flesh and blood. It means your big enemy is not the person who disagrees with you politically. Your big enemy is not some politician. Your big enemy is not some person out there. Your big enemy is not your arch rival from high school. Your big enemy is not your ex-boyfriend or girlfriend. Your big enemy is not a person. Your big enemy, the big struggle of your life is against the rulers and authorities and the powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces of evil. In other words, your big fight is not against another person. It's against Satan and his demons. It is against the ones who come to tempt you and destroy you, the ones who come to deceive you and accuse you and discourage you and draw you away from God. And here's the reality. The reality is that most of us who live in the Western world, most of us who live in the Western world in the last few hundred years live as if this verse isn't true. Like, I just want you to read this verse again. And I want you to think, do I live as if this is true? Because most people, even Christian people, even people like me who claim to believe the Bible, often live as if this is not true. And then what begins to happen in our life is we begin to live and act as if the most important thing in our life is the people in front of us, the problems we face, the systems of this world. We start to think that the biggest problem in this world is the stuff and the people we can see. And when we start to do that, When we start to live as if the biggest issue in our life is physical and material, the stuff of this world, our faith always suffers. So let me give you an invitation tonight that if you want revival in your faith, you must confess and repent of naturalism. You must confess and repent of naturalism. And what is naturalism? Naturalism is the belief that we are in a closed system that everything that happens in your life has natural causes, that everything that happens in your relationships is just because of stuff between humans. There's no God. He doesn't interfere with the world. There's no Satan. There's no demons. You're just living your life. And so what often happens is you tend to get in the same fight over and over and over again with your mom. Naturalism assumes it's just because you and her have drama. But what we believe as Christians is that Satan's actually stirring up that strife between you. But like naturalism assumes that if a nation passes unjust laws, it's just because the people were ignorant and didn't know any better. When we actually believe that Satan and his demons stir up evil in this world. When two nations go to war, we often think it's over minerals or resources or lands or borders. But what it is, is they're being stirred up. 
And so again, what we need to do if we want to have revival in our faith is we need to confess and turn from naturalism, this idea that God isn't actually interfering in this world. Like, I just want to challenge some of you. I think we live in a world that has unbelievably medicalized and naturalized everything. And so rather than looking towards spiritual things, what we do is we immediately look for some sort of political solution or some kind of medical solution. What we immediately look for is some kind of solution in the, in, in the physical world that can kind of explain things. Rather than trusting that God is actually the one who is in our world and, and acting in our world and that Satan is coming against us. And my profound concern for all of us is that we would be a people who turn from naturalism, turn from this idea that the material world is all that matters, and turn back toward God. And here's how we do it. Um, I want you to do this. I want you to assume that whatever the issue is, is in fact a spiritual issue. I want you to assume that whatever issue is going on in your life, and I don't know what the big issue going on in your life right now is, but I want you to assume that it is in fact a spiritual issue. Sometimes as Christians, we say things like, well, I just don't want to over-spiritualize this right now. And here's what I've learned. There are about 5% of you in this room where I need you to not over-spiritualize things, okay? Like if your shoe was untied, it wasn't the devil. It was because you tied it poorly, right? If you're like hungry and you haven't eaten all day and you're kind of grouchy, definitely pray, but also eat a sandwich, okay? Like so there, there are like 5% of you that will over-spiritualize things. There's like 5% of you that every single thing that goes on, you're like, it was the devil, Right? And for you, I don't just ignore this thing on the screen right now, okay? If you know that your temptation is always to kind of over-spiritualize everything, you're like, my gas tank is empty. He must have siphoned it. I'm like, no, you just didn't pull over. Like, if that's you, ignore this. But, but here's where I think 95% of you are. And that means like, assume this is about you. The assumption most of you should make as a Western Christian living in the Western world is that you tend to under-spiritualize things that you tend to ignore the spiritual aspect of things. And so like I've been married for 10 years and my wife and I tend to have the same fights over and over and over again. You have any relationships where you have the same arguments over and over and over again? Like we have those. And like the way I want to assume it so often is like, oh, that's just because she said this and I said this, rather than assuming that there are actually times when Satan can stir up resentment between a husband and a wife. You ever just had randomly mean thoughts about someone? Like you were so good and everything was well and then suddenly you're just ruminating. You're like, they're the worst and they did the worst. It happens to me in the shower all the time. I'm like in the shower and then suddenly I'm getting all worked up about something or someone. And why should I assume that's not a spiritual issue? Why in the world wouldn't I assume that Satan wouldn't wanna stir up my heart and my mind in anger and frustration towards someone else? Uh, again, whether it's relationships you're in, whether it's a struggle you're going through. Like, listen, I believe in, in depression. And I believe depression can be a combination of a spiritual and a physical issue. So I'll be the last person to say that you shouldn't go see a doctor or work on your health. And at the same time, in our world, we've so clinicalized everything where we say anyone who's sad, it's just a biochemical issue in your brain rather than assuming it is somehow interacting with a physical and spiritual issue together. The same is true of anxiety. If you're constantly gripped by anxiety and fear and worry about everything, there may be some medical issues, but it is also a spiritual issue. It fits together. So what do we want to be? We want to be a people who agree with the apostle Paul when he says the biggest struggle in your life is not material, physical stuff, but rather the dark forces of power in this world. That's your battle. That we would be a people who stop saying, well, I don't want to over-spiritualize this because most of us are not at risk of doing that. It says, therefore, in verse 13, it says, therefore, put on the full armor of God. So when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. 
And I love here in verse 13, he recognized that there's spiritual warfare, there's spiritual battle going on for your soul. But I love what he says here, and I've underlined these words. It says, when the day of evil comes. And I want you to notice that he doesn't say if the day of evil comes. He understands that it is going to come. It's a question of when. Like, like the real thing in your life is to understand that spiritual attack and spiritual warfare and Satan coming after you isn't a question of if, it's simply a question of when. And here's my observation. Most people think spiritual warfare is irrelevant. They think it's irrelevant. They just don't think it's a play in their life. They don't think it's really going on. They don't think it's a real issue for them. They think their life and their problems are really just explained by a number of circumstances going on in their life rather than knowing that spiritual warfares happen. But here's what you must know, that God's people know that spiritual warfare is inevitable. We know it's inevitable. We know it's coming. We have to have this awareness. We have to know it's coming. We can't be blind to this reality. Like, I just want to speak this over you that Satan is going to lie to you. Satan is going to discourage you. Satan is going to tempt you and Satan is going to accuse you. These are not optional things in your life. This is coming. We know what Satan's doing because he's been doing it since the beginning. He's been doing it all throughout the Bible. These things are coming your way and here's what we need to be. We need to be aware, but not afraid. I want you to be aware, but not afraid. But like the goal of tonight's sermon is not for you to just like walk in constant terror of the devil and all that he might be doing in your life. I want you to be aware, but I want you to be af- not be afraid. Like I'll put it to you this way. There's something that is in this room right now Um, And all of you have touched it tonight. All of you have experienced tonight. All of you have experienced this throughout your entire life. And it's nothing you can see. It's nothing you could even observe with your eye. The thing that every single one of you has all over you right now are these little things, germs. Now, some of you are like immediately pulling out the hand sanitizer. You're like, not anymore, right? (laughs) Yet, Yet everywhere in this room, everywhere on your body, there's germs, and like and when we discovered as a human species, like germs, we started to understand that germs were actually a major player in health and disease and, and nutrition and bacteria and in our gut and all these different things. We started to understand how all of these things played with one another. Now, now here's what we know. What we know is you have germs on your hand. There are germs on your seat. There are germs on a door. There are dirt germs in your car. There's germs everywhere, right? And yet there's two improper responses to the reality, like the germ theory of disease. The first is to say, it doesn't matter and I don't care and I'm not even gonna think about it, right? You're like, I don't care about germs. I'm not gonna wash my hands. I'm not gonna do anything. And what does that make you? Sick, right? It makes you sick. If you're like, germs don't exist, I'm good, right? It's going to make you sick. And yet, here's the fascinating thing. If you're the type of person who's like, there's germs on my hands, I can't see them. Oh my gosh, what if there's germs over there and over there and over there and over there, right? And and you start to like think about germs constantly and all you're doing is thinking about germs and you start to think about germs so often that it starts to overwhelm your life. What do we call this? A hypochondriac, someone who's just constantly worried about getting sick, constantly worried about germs. You're always thinking about it. You know what that makes you? Sick. Like, isn't that fascinating? If you ignore it, it makes you sick. If you obsess over it, it makes you sick. It's the same way with spiritual warfare. If you ignore it, it will make you sick. If you ignore spiritual warfare, Satan will have the better hand on you. But also if you obsess over it and you find yourself constantly thinking about the devil and talking about the devil and considering the devil and wondering what the devil's doing, it'll make you sick in the same way. So what do we wanna be tonight? We wanna be aware, but not afraid. Wanna be aware, but not afraid. And how do we be aware, but we don't be afraid? We think about it in the same way of germs. In the same way, here's what we know. Um, When it comes to germs, you don't have to ignore it. You don't have to obsess over it. You just have to take some simple defenses and precautions. 
And when it comes to germs, it's like use hand sanitizer, wash your hands, like try not to touch things that are incredibly gross, right? There are some simple defenses when it comes to germs. And tonight I wanna give you six defenses for spiritual attack. Six defenses for spiritual attack. And I'm not just gonna make these up. These aren't things on my heart or mind. This is exactly what Paul is going to tell us in this next paragraph. Let me read it over you right now. Verse 14. So stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted for the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Tonight, we're talking about these six defenses for spiritual attack, and you'll see these six armor pieces that are named. There's a belt, there's a breastplate that goes over the chest. Your feet are fitted with shoes or some kind of sandals, right? There's a shield of faith, there's a helmet of salvation and a sword of the spirit. And the intention of Paul when he's giving this to us isn't that we would sit around and obsessed over like a Roman soldier and how they were dressed and think deeply about Roman soldiers. His point was, if you want to defend yourself against spiritual attack, if you want to defend yourself against accusation, temptation, deception, and discouragement, if you want to live in such a way that you're aware of these spiritual realities, here are the six ways you do it. And so that's what I wanna talk to you about for the rest of our time here, the six ways we defend ourselves from spiritual attack. Number one, six defenses for spiritual attack. Number one, the belt of truth defends us against the tyranny of our emotions. The tyranny of our emotions. Here's what the belt of truth does. The belt of truth allows us to look to what is true no matter what we feel on the inside. A lot of us kind of like to believe we are these rational actors and creatures who just make decisions based on what we think and what we think alone. But that's not actually true of your life and mine. All kinds of times we are driven deeply by emotion. Our emotion shapes us and it molds us and it drives us to make certain decisions. And here's what I want you to know, even as I talk about truth in contrast to emotion, I want you to know three things about emotion. Number one, emotions are good. Like the emotion you feel is a good thing. Like never become convinced that Christianity is meant to just be experienced here. It's deeply emotional. You experience it, it's good. Number two, emotions are a gift. Like, can you imagine how terrible life would be if we never felt joy or laughter or fear or, or surprise or anything like that? If life was just kind of like, it would be robotic. Emotions are a gift. But here's number three, emotions are not God. And far too many people live as if their emotions were God meaning whatever they feel in a moment, whatever feels right to them, whatever seems inside of them correct, they live out of that. What they've actually done is they've said, my emotions are God, my emotions call the shot, my emotions rule my life. Here's why emotions are not your God, because emotions do not always match reality. Emotions don't always match reality. And so when you have these emotions that are good and they're a gift, you need something outside of yourself to remind yourself what reality actually is. It's like this. So every summer, uh, I get to go up and speak at a bunch of different camps all over California. And as I'm driving to those camps, almost every time I make some kind of wrong turn around the way. I don't know what it is about me. I just make a wrong turn. And the frustrating, irritating thing is it's not like I'm just flying blind. Every time I leave my house to drive for a camp, I punch in the address for the camp on my little GPS thing on my phone, right on the maps. And it's just telling me which direction to turn. But almost every single time I'm driving up, I think to myself, that looks like a shortcut. I'll go that way. And it's never actually a shortcut. Like I think in my mind, I know what's best. I'll go this way. And every time I go, I know what's best. I'll go this way. Rather than following the little thing over there, I end up getting myself into trouble. I'm usually in a mountain. I can't figure out where to get out. I don't have cell reception. Why? 
because I depended on my intuition, something inside of me, rather than looking objectively to something outside of me. That's what the belt of truth is. The belt of truth says what is inside of me will often lead me astray. But if I look objectively to something outside of me, if I look to the truth of God, if I look to the truth of who God is, that will send me on the right direction. So if we want to wear the belt of truth, we must submit the feelings inside of us to the reality outside of us. You must commit to being the type of Christian who says, I'm filled with feeling and emotion, and yet I'm going to look to God and his truth outside of me objectively so that my feelings do not run my life so that I can avoid the tyranny of emotion. That's the belt of truth. Number two, the breastplate of righteousness defends us against the pain of our sin. So if you imagine a soldier wearing a breastplate, this would be a large metal kind of shield that they're wearing on top of themselves that would cover their front and cover their back. Of all the pieces of armor we're going to name tonight, the breastplate is by far the heaviest. It's the heaviest thing. It sits on top of you. It is a weight you hold. And yet, the, the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate that you would wear as armor, is also defending the most important part of you. It's defending your heart, your lungs, your internal organs. It's defending you. And so it is a weight, but it is also a valuable weight that you wear. And here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that the weight of walking in righteousness is a heavy weight at times. At times, it is difficult to do what is right rather than what you feel, to do what is right by God's eyes rather than what everyone else wants you to do. Walking in righteousness has never, even in the scriptures, been described as an easy or a simple thing. And yet it is the most important thing you can do if you want to avoid the pain of your sin. Like, I just wanna be abundantly clear tonight. Your sin, child of God, will never cost you your salvation. Your sin will never cost you your salvation because your sin is already paid for on the cross of Jesus. It's already atoned through through the blood of Christ. Your sin will not rob you of your salvation, but your sin will rob you of your joy and your peace and your purpose. So what does the breastplate of righteousness do? It means when I walk in righteousness, I walk in righteousness, not because I'm trying to earn my salvation. That's already been earned by Jesus, but because I'm trying to experience the joy and the peace and the purpose that comes through righteousness. Like I was walking with a young man years ago and we were talking about um, his childhood. And like some of you, this young man had a terrible relationship with his dad. Uh, his dad was angry. His dad was abusive. His dad was a terrible dad. There are times he wished he never actually knew his dad. That's how horrible that relationship was. Uh, and yet for this young man, he was so filled with anger, so filled with rage, so filled with bitterness. And, and over time, we're working through that. And I start to point out that what God calls us to do in order to deal with that rage and bitterness and anger is to forgive. That Jesus says you're called to forgive, that we're told in the scriptures to forgive just as Jesus forgave us. But this young man would not forgive. And his story is so common. It's the story of someone who's angry and bitter and twisted up. And rather than forgiving and walking in righteousness, they hold in that bitterness. And you know the one who suffered the most was? It wasn't this young man's dad. It was him. So that's what happens. When you don't walk in righteousness, the person who suffers isn't someone else out there. It's you. Your sin always robs from you. It always takes from you. It never gives to you. It's like for years, I was the high school pastor here at Calvary, and I can't tell you how many times there was a young man and a young woman, they both loved Jesus, they were fired up about the Lord, everything was going well, then they noticed one another one day, and suddenly they become an item. And everything's good, and they're flourishing in their faith, and they're posting pictures of themselves reading the Bible together, and then suddenly everything goes south. And they're angry, and they're bitter, and they're twisted up, and they're mad, and everything seems to have gone sideways in their life, and you're going, what's going on? And when you dig beneath just a little bit, you found that they have crossed boundaries sexually that they never intended to do. 
And again, it just sounds like I'm just picking randomly on sex before marriage. I'm not doing that. What I'm trying to point out is that when we don't walk in righteousness, we don't experience condemnation for our sin. We experience consequences for our sin. And those consequences end up wrecking our relationships, wrecking our peace, wrecking our joy, and wrecking our purpose in this world. The breastplate of righteousness is this heavy thing we walk with. And yet that heavy thing of righteousness is the most valuable load we can carry in this world. It goes on this way in verse three. It says, the shoes of the gospel of peace defend us against the nihilism and cynicism of our age. Like I'm persuaded um, for your generation, and I'm not sure at this point at 35 years old if I'm part of your generation or not, but we'll just kind of go, I don't know. Um, but, but I'm persuaded when I look at young people right now, um, the thing that is just pervasive is nihilism and cynicism. Nihilism is this kind of belief like nothing matters, nothing's even important, so you might as well just go home and look at porn and play video games and get drunk because nothing really matters. The world has no meaning. Nothing matters at all. And then the cynicism kind of comes down to all the failures of this world of institutions. So like family and church and government and school have failed. My parents got divorced, so why should I even get married? My parents had kids and everything's miserable, so why should I even have kids? The church has failed, so why should I even be a part of it? Like businesses are corrupt, so why should I even lean in? It's this kind of cynicism about the world. And nihilism and cynicism are so pervasive in your culture, you just swim in the water of it, where everyone just kind of seems to be angry and cynical and nihilistic and nothing really matters. But here's what the shoes of the gospel, fitted for the gospel of peace, defend us against. They defend us against it because whatever you're cynical about, whatever you're nihilistic about, whatever you think doesn't matter and it's not really important, the gospel says this, that if nothing else in this world matters, God matters. He created human beings in his image. They matter. And the person in front of you, no matter what you think of them, will live for all of eternity. You have never met a mortal person. There is no mortal person in this world. The scriptures are clear that all of us will live for eternity, either in a glorious resurrection in heaven or in a separated judgment reality from God in hell. There is no in-between. Every human being you've ever met matters, not just now, but a hundred trillion years from now, they will matter. So what does that do? It blows up this kind of nihilism and cynicism. Like, yeah, there's broken institutions in this world, but he matters and she matters and that person over there matters and so do they. And what it does is actually stirs up in us this desire that we would introduce people to the God who created them. The shoes of the gospel of peace destroy nihilism and cynicism in our life. Can I just speak this over someone who needs to hear this tonight? Five things. The cynicism is not drawing you closer to God. It's not drawing you closer to God. You just being cynical about everything and every good thing that happens in this world, you kind of looking down on it, it's not drawing you to God. Nihilism is not drawing you closer to God detachment, you just kind of stepping back from everything and not really caring and not really engaging and not really being intimate and not really having friendships with anyone, that's not drawing you closer to God. Can I speak this over someone? Nonstop negativity is not drawing you close to God. Like there's room in this world and there's room in faith for negativity. I don't believe there is room for the person who is constantly negative about everything. You call yourself a realist, I would call you just negative. And it's drawing you away from God. This kind of angry, negative thing is not drawing you close to God. And then listen, constant criticism is not drawing you close to God. It's easy to critique. It's hard to build something meaningful in this world. What makes you closer to God is you actually stepping out in faith and doing something. Here's what Philippians 4 says. It says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure and lovely and admirable, whatever is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. Here's number four. The shield of faith defends us against the fog of the moment. Um, The shield of faith, here's what faith fundamentally does. 
Faith fundamentally counters this major lie of the enemy. And here's the lie the enemy loves to tell you above all else. The lie the enemy loves to tell you above all else is that it's always gonna be this way. It's always going to be this way. So you're struggling in a relationship and Satan says it's always gonna be this way. You're struggling with depression. He says, you're always gonna be lonely and depressed. You're angry at someone who hurts you and he says, you're always gonna be bitter and you're always gonna be mad and you're always gonna be hurting. What Satan loves to do is he loves to tell you it's always gonna be this way. Like I was having a conversation with someone I know and love who was in a bad spot the other day. And I was talking to this individual and I hung up the phone and I just thought, man, this is never gonna get better. It's always gonna be this way. And in that moment, Satan was lying to me. He was telling me something that is objectively, according to the witness of scripture, not true. When what is not true is that it's always gonna be this way. Here's what Hebrews 11 chapter one says. It says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. Faith is fundamentally about us believing that God is going to do right by us, that God is going to show himself to be strong and that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so when we start to believe it's always going to be this way, we fall into the lies of the enemy and the shield of faith defends us against the fog of the moment by reminding us that it won't be like this forever. It won't be like this forever. Number five, the helmet of salvation defends us against the guilt of our sin. I told you earlier that your sin will have consequences. Every time you sin, there will be consequences in your life. There's no way of you walking in sin and not experiencing some of the earthly consequences in this life. But here's the good news of the gospel. There is no condemnation for you. Romans chapter eight, verse one says, therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Like, I just wanna speak this gospel truth over someone tonight that the next time you stumble into your sin, the next time you lie, the next time you covet, the next time you are filled with unforgiveness and rage and anger, the next time you slip and look at pornography, the next time you cross a line with your girlfriend or boyfriend, the next time you do that thing you swore you would never do again, I want you to know that the condemnation for your sin has already been put on Jesus. There's none left for you. So the next time you start to believe, well, I've sinned and God's probably given up on you, may I remind you of the words of Martin Luther. These are beautiful words. The next time you sin and you're wallowing in your guilt, remember these words. He says this, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. That's your invitation. Next time you sin, you tell the devil to go back to the hell he came from. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose from the dead. Your sin is fully and finally forgiven. The helmet of salvation reminds me that whatever consequences I'll experience for my sin in this life, there's no condemnation. Jesus took it all. This is the gospel. And then here's number six. Number six and the final one is the sword of the spirit defends us against the deception of Satan. So the sword we're talking about here, we imagine this like long sword from medieval times. That's not really what the sword is here. It's about an 18 inch dagger. And a Roman soldier would have it with them. They would have longer lances and different things. But if it got real up close and personal, they would have this dagger. I don't know if this is how you defend yourself, but like they would have like training in this, right? And they would know how to use this dagger to defend themselves. And yet what I want you to be aware of is that in order for them to use this dagger, this sword well, they would actually have to be trained in this. They would have to be trained in the knowledge of the truth. And here's what the scriptures say the sword of the spirit is. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. And I want you to know that if you want to defend yourself against Satan, there's no greater tool for you to use than to know the word of God. And just like a Roman soldier would have to be trained in how to use that sword to defend themselves up and close, you need to be trained in the word of God. 
You can't just assume that you know some things about the Bible and therefore you're going to be all right. You need to train yourself to be someone who is deeply shaped by God's word. If you want to push back against Satan, if you want to hold your ground, if you don't want to be bowled over by Satan and his schemes, the most important thing for you to know is what God already said. Because you know what Satan's first little strategy was all the way back in the book of Genesis? His first strategy to Adam and Eve was to question them in this way. Did God really say? Did God really say? You see the activity of Satan in the Bible and it begins with Satan entering into this world and challenging what God actually says. And you, child of God, should be able to say, I know exactly what my God said. Get out of here, Satan. I have no interest in what you have to say because I know what my creator has to say to me. This is the invitation for us to know the word, to love the word. Listen, we're about to enter into September next month, right? September, October, November, December. There is no reason that you cannot decide right now that this year, you're gonna pick up the word of God. You're gonna pick up the Bible. I just wanna plead over and over and over that you would be the type of person who knows the word and loves the word and studies the word, that you would know Satan and his schemes and you would know how to stand against it. We're gonna close with verse 18. I'll invite our band back up and here's what I wanna read to you. It says this. It says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So here's how Paul ends. He talks about this armor of God we have, this belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes fitted for the gospel of peace. He goes through all of these defenses we have uh, against the enemy, against the attacks of Satan, against the schemes of Satan. And then in verse 18, he goes, but you know what? Like none of this really works unless you pray. None of this really works unless you pray. And unless you pray, what does it say? In the spirit on all occasions and with all kinds of prayers and requests. Like in other words, if you wanna have a chance in spiritual warfare, you gotta listen to God through his word, but you gotta learn to pray. And I don't just mean like you pray occasionally. What does it say? You pray on all kinds of occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. And why do you pray? Because prayer is the only way you make it through spiritual warfare. I love what John Piper says. He says it this way. He says, the number one reason why prayer malfunctions in the hands of believers is that they turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. Until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Prayer is for the accomplishment of a wartime mission. It's as though the field commander, Jesus, called the troops and gave them a crucial mission, go and bear fruit, handed each of them a personal transmitter coded to the frequency of the general's headquarters and said, comrades, the general has a mission for you. He aims to see it accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized me to give each of you personal access to him through these transmitters. If you stay true to his mission and seek victory first, he will always be as close as your transmitter to give tactical advice and to send air cover when you and your comrades need it. And then he says this, but what, millions of Christ, what have millions of Christians done? They've stopped believing they were at war. No urgency, no watching, no vigilance, no strategic planning, just easy peacetime prosperity. And what did they do with the walkie-talkie? They tried to rig it up as an intercom in their cushy houses and cabins and boats and cars, not to call firepower in conflict with a mortal enemy, but to ask the maid to bring another pillow to the den. And my question for you simply is this. Do you believe you're in a spiritual war? Like, do you believe that Satan hates you and he wants to destroy you? Do you believe that already today he's been lying to you? Do you believe that already today he's been deceiving you? That he's been accusing you of sin? Do you believe that already today he's been discouraging you? He's been tempting you? Or do you just kind of operate as if God doesn't really exist? Do you just kind of operate in the world as if everything that happens to you is just a cause of natural causes? Or do you believe you're in the midst of a spiritual war? And you know what the evidence of whether or not you believe you're in a spiritual war or not? It's not what you say. What you say is irrelevant. The evidence of whether or not you think you're actually in a spiritual war is the state of your prayer life.
It's the state of whether or not you cry out to God. And tonight, I wanna call some of you back into a life of prayer where you actually wake up in the morning and you cry out to God and you say, God, I know today I'm gonna be tempted to do the one thing I swore I'd never do again. So God, I just need you to give me strength. God, I know today I'm gonna be discouraged. I know somewhere along the way, I'm just gonna start to believe that everything's lost and I'm no good and everyone hates me and my life is no meaning. God, help me through that. God, today I know I'm gonna be deceived. I know I'm gonna start to believe things that aren't true. So God, help defend me against the lies of the enemy. God, I know today Satan's gonna accuse me. So when he throws that sin in my face, would you remind me of the blood of Jesus? I just wanna remind you that your prayer life is what tells us whether or not we actually believe we're in a war. So here's the invitation we're gonna do tonight. Um, I'm gonna just give us some space right now. And I want you to go do some business with God. If you're a Christian and you've kind of been living as if life is easy and it's comfortable and spiritual warfare doesn't exist and you've just kind of been like floating through life, maybe it's time to just kind of confess and repent of that before the Lord. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're not even sure if you believe in God, here's the coolest thing. You can just like call out to him in the quietness of your heart and mind and if he's there, he'll hear you and if not, what have you lost? And if tonight you are someone who knows that God is real and you know that spiritual warfare is real, would you pray for the rest of us in this room? that we would have a heart and a sensitivity toward the very real struggle, the very real war. Because Paul says, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but rather the dark forces of spiritual evil in this world. They are coming after you. And I want to invite you in this moment to do some business before God. Would you go before him in prayer right now? So Father in heaven, help us become men and women of prayer. Help us to be a people who call out to you, understanding that spiritual warfare is a reality in our life right now. God, I pray against the deception of the enemy that we would think clearly and know your word. God, I pray against this discouragement over anyone in this room who's just feeling down and overwhelmed, like life is never gonna work out. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would break through with the light of the truth of the gospel. God, I pray for those who are tempted and tried, those who are drawn into sin, those who can't seem to get away from it. God, I pray that you would give them freedom as they walk by the Spirit. And God, I pray for the one who feels so guilty and ashamed, who the accusation sits heavy upon. God, I pray you would remind them of the gospel tonight. So God, help us to take our stand against the devil and his schemes. Help us to be aware but not afraid. And help us above all to be a people of prayer, a people of your word, and a people who trust you in all things. So God, we love you. We trust you. We lean into you. And we ask that you would show up in this place. We place in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Thank you for listening to this message. I hope it was a blessing to you and want to invite you to join us on Thursday nights for service at 7 p.m. To connect with us, follow us on Instagram at calvya underscore or on our website, calvarywestlake.org.